The Eric Yana Show, episode 24. Welcome back. Happy 4th of July week. I am recording on Wednesday after the 4th of July, and I am happy to be back home recording another podcast. Today, we are going to continue with our series, How to Think About Capitalism. I know I didn't release a podcast last week. I was traveling yet again um, with my wife all over the place, and I also got rather sick, so... Rather than go back and cover part three, which I have released on my blog as of last week, uh, I'm just going to continue with part four today. Um, So if you haven't read part three, I would encourage you to do that before listening to this podcast because this podcast covers the article that I released on the 4th of July, which is part four of our series of how to think about capitalism. Now, quick rundown. Again, if you haven't been following our series, this is a series I wanted to do Uh, to introduce people into the ideas of intellectual history. And in particular, how do we think about capitalism? Uh, Not what to think about capitalism, but how to think about it. In other words, what would be the way in which you'd go about investigating the ideas that surround and regard capitalism in our modern society? And if you've been following our series, then you know that we've identified two intellectual traditions that are relevant to the study of capitalism and the intellectual history of capitalism, and in particular, relevant to our understanding of how we would see capitalism. And those intellectual traditions are the Christian intellectual tradition and that of the civic republican tradition. So the first three parts of the series have been dedicated to defining what those traditions are, how they view capitalism um, in various stages of their history, because they're both very long um, Traditions, though the great traditions of, the, of Western civilization. And in this series today, we will cover a, a, a different question. We will finally move away from those two traditions and instead ask the question what has changed since the 15th century? Um, so, to give just a basic context, we know, as from the first part of the series, that capitalism proper, as we understand it in the modern era, really takes off in the 18th century. We, we know by the 18th century that a, a really commercial society, in the sense that we would mean it today in terms of capitalism, was alive and well in the 18th century. And we also know from our series that as late as the 15th century, virtually nobody was very fond of commercial markets. There was not a great philosophical view of commerce, trade, profit, money-making, lending, banking. So today, we want to ask the question and examine an answer to the question of what happened? What changed between the 15th century and today? By the 18th century, you know, something had begun to change. Um, In particular, we know that most people who participate in the traditions of the Christian intellectual tradition and the civic republican tradition also no longer view or have negative views of capitalism the, the way that those traditions Uh, likely or on average had in the 15th century, let's say. So that's what we're going to be covering. I'm going to be reading my article that I uh, released yesterday on the 4th of July and uh, offering a little bit of commentary at the end. And I hope you enjoy. So here we go. Let's dive in. 
So before I answer the question directly, that is the question of what happened between the 15th century and, and the modern day to these traditions, I think it's worth wondering why you know, anything is supposed to have changed in the first place. Isn't it possible that both the Christian and civic republican traditions, as they exist today, are still just as suspicious as they have always been towards the ideas of a commercial society? Um, and the answer to that is, is certainly they are. But nevertheless, it seems clear that most people today participate in some form or another in one or both of these traditions, and yet no longer possess the ire towards commerce that they might have had in the 15th century, let's say. So why is that, is the question. Why shouldn't a secularist or a modern-day Catholic be just as suspicious of the destructive or sinful capacities of capitalism as their forebears? Well, perhaps they should, but the fact remains that most of us are relatively happy with the idea of a commercial society and the luxuries that it provides, and yet still participate in these traditions. The explanation, in a word, historically, for the change that has occurred in our culture is liberalism. In the course of the 17th century, the ideals of both the Christian and civic republican traditions were challenged by many of the great thinkers of the so-called Enlightenment. Among those who took up the mantle of destroying the great traditions of the West, perhaps none were greater than the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes set the stage for a revolution in intellectual thought, which culminated in the political philosophy known as liberalism, or what is sometimes referred to in our modern era as classical liberalism. As we'll see, Hobbes and his proponents in the 17th and 18th century argued for a new perspective on commerce and self-love, which saw capitalism as a mechanism for peaceful social life and a greater material well-being. Now, these ideas were eventually married to the traditions of Christianity and civic republicanism, which we've examined in the previous posts. And the offspring of that union would become both great and terrible. It is what is known today as the United States of America. So in honor of the 4th of July and by happy coincidence of timing, we will be commemorating this 4th by examining the intellectual origins of the great nation of the U.S. of A. And in particular, we will be examining the writings of our intellectual great-grandfather, Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes, born 1588, died 1679, was born in England to an uneducated clergyman who spent more time in the bar than the church, which was sadly uh, not uncommon for his time. Young Tommy, however, could not have appeared more different from his drunkard father. Hobbes was a gifted intellectual and went to Oxford to train as a clergyman. Fate, God, or the aimless energy flows of the universe had different plans for young Thomas, however. He trained as a humanist instead and became a man of Renaissance letters. Now, if you don't know, in Hobbes' day, the word humanist carried a very different connotation from the word today. A humanist was a person educated in science, philosophy, and the ancient languages of Latin and Greek, or i.e. the humanities. They were not, therefore, adherents to a weird man-is-all philosophy, which has co-opted the word in our present day. The problem for a humanist in the 16th century is the same problem that is faced by someone trained in science, philosophy, and dead languages today. What are you going to do for work? Fortunately for Hobbes, patronage was still a system available to the nerds of the world back then. 
And patronage was a system by which wealthy, often political noblemen, would hire intellectuals to tutor their children in science and philosophy. We no longer have the patronage system, so those of us who wasted time learning Latin and Greek must content ourselves with the occasional impressed look from the girl in engineering. Gaudiamus igitor. By the way, there does exist a form of patronage still very much alive. You could, for example, have a look-see at my Patreon page, for example. At any rate, Hobbes found his patron in the powerful Cavendish family. Hobbes tutored Lord Cavendish's son and accompanied him on his grand tour, where he met the leading thinkers of the day, including, for example, Galileo. Also of interest, Cavendish possessed a board seat on the Virginia Company, so Hobbes would have been able to sit in on the board meetings of this famous or infamous prototype of modern capitalism, which may have informed his later views. Uh, Though most famous for his political philosophy, Hobbes also wrote about optics and even translated Thucydides into English. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, But as I said, Hobbes is most famous for his political philosophy, so let's get down to it. Hobbes' life coincided with a period of marked political and, in particular, religious violence. Hobbes wrote his best-selling book smack dab in the middle of a great upheaval of war in Europe. There was, for example, the English Civil War, the Thirty Years' War in Central Europe, and the Fronde in France. Working for the Cavendish family, Hobbes was allied to very pro-royalist or pro-king forces in England during the English Civil War. This war pitted the Anglican Church, along with its supreme pontiff, the King of England, against the largely Calvinist Parliament. This became problematic for Hobbes when his side began decidedly losing. Fearing for his life, he fled to Paris. Hobbes then arrived in Central Europe to find a situation much the same as the one he had left. During the Thirty, Civil, 30, excuse me, the 30 Years' War, for example, the Lutherans and the Calvinists were killing each other at an extraordinarily faster rate than the Catholics could have ever hoped to have killed either of them. It has been estimated that as many as 8 million people died in the Thirty Years' War, and as much as half of the total population of Germany was totally wiped out making this conflict one of the greatest in European history. But I'm sure we all learned that in school. To make matters worse, when Hobbes arrived in Paris, France was also embroiled in its own civil war, which was known as the Fronde, or the Fronde. Perhaps out of sheer frustration with all the violence, and in particular the religious violence, Hobbes wrote his most famous or infamous work, Leviathan. If you haven't read or even heard of Leviathan, it means that you definitely didn't study philosophy at college, because Leviathan is certainly considered one of the greatest works of philosophy ever written in English. Well, not to fret, your engineering degree served you well, because I'll be giving you the synopsis of the book anyways, Uh, so I've just saved you like $1,200 in college course fees. What a savings, probably worth coffee if you want to go check out my Patreon page. But if you're still here, let's ask the question, what even was the Leviathan? And the answer is, it was a book, or a work, rather, on political philosophy, and it was meant to address not only a specific situation that Hobbes saw in Europe at the time, namely all the war that we just covered, um, but it also concerned long-lasting, recurrent social issues, or political issues, and for that reason it has continued to command an honored place in political philosophy curricula. Now, in the interest of uh, keeping this podcast in my post under 200 hours, 
I will do my best to simply simplify Hobbes' argument, particularly in the context of the traditions we have been discussing over the course of the last few weeks. Hobbes' main contention in Leviathan is that we ought not to assume that mankind has any purpose whatsoever beyond survival and material well-being. In politics, therefore, we shouldn't begin with an idealized view of what man ought to be, or what man should look like in some perfect world. We can't, for example, assume that man's purpose is to be holy and to know God, because men don't agree on what man's purpose is. Even if they agree on man's purpose, let's say salvation, they often don't agree on how to get it. So, the Catholics, Hobbes contends, for example, would argue that only the Catholic Church uh, can provide salvation. That is, only through the Roman Catholic Church can one come to know God or be saved. But the problem is that the Lutherans also argue that only through the Lutheran Church could one come to be saved or know God. And the same with the Calvinists and the Puritans and the Baptists and so on. Each denomination in Central Europe at this time claimed that only their church was the one in which you could get salvation and know God. So Hobbes concludes, rather than trying to organize society around a vision of what's the best or most ideal structure, we instead ought to organize around what we agree is the worst form of society, because it would be much easier for us to get men to agree on what is the worst than what is the best. And this worst form of society is what Hobbes calls the state of nature. The state of nature is any state where sudden, violent death is a constant or imminent threat. For Hobbes, then, the central problem of politics was how to prevent the state of nature, how to solve the state of nature. Or in other words, how to prevent everyone from killing each other all the time. The solution to the state of nature for Hobbes was to create a powerful state ruled by what he called a sovereign with the strength necessary to squash all potential threats, both foreign and domestic, to the common peace. He called the sovereign Leviathan. Now, he based much of his work, uh, both in the Leviathan and elsewhere, but much of his political thought um, on what he claimed would be a correct understanding of human psychology. In his mind, and that is in the mind of Hobbes, everyone fears a violent death and constant combat. Starting from that assumption, as we've already mentioned, we're, we're trying to organize around not the utopia, but the dystopia. We want to avoid the worst form of society. And Hobbes thinks everybody can agree that violent death is a bad thing. Therefore, it's relatively easier to get people to agree that, while not having the ideal society, to live peacefully amongst your neighbors with general wealth and prosperity is preferable to violent physical death. Um, so that would be an easier, relatively easier thing to get everybody to agree on rather than to get everybody to agree on a vision of utopia. And it's on that basis that Hobbes argued that people begrudgingly accept the need for a powerful sovereign, even if they don't love, necessarily, the idea of government. So Hobbes, for example, says everybody grumbles about government and taxes and regulation. But nobody prefers to live in a state of nature where every day you're fighting for your survival. We all want the benefits of the state. People just tend to underrate them. 
So, technically speaking, this Leviathan, this sovereign that Hobbes is saying everybody sort of begrudgingly accepts, um, this could be any theoretically any form of government. It doesn't have to be a monarch or dictator or tyrant. It could theoretically be a democratically elected government. But Hobbes, in practice, was very critical not only of the Christian intellectual tradition, but also the civic republican tradition. What use, asked Hobbes, is participation in the governmental process if it inevitably leads to such a weak and fractured society um, that the state cannot even protect its citizens from one another? So, thus in practice, Hobbes advocated for the establishment of a particularly powerful monarch whose power was virtually totalitarian in scope. So after we have agreed on the worst case scenario, as far as Hobbes is concerned, then everyone should be, ought to be free to go and enjoy their, their own little vision of the good by themselves, so long as they don't harm anyone else in the process. The problem for Hobbes was that his psychology turned out to be rather wrong to some respect. It turns out that many people, particularly in Hobbes' day, were quite willing to die for eternal salvation, or, or even the continuation of their civic community, rather than to simply give up on those ideals in exchange for slightly better material well-being. So as it happens, people who believe in God or believe in the ideals of their nation, they are quite willing, on average, uh, to have eternal prosperity or to continue their national identity than earthly prosperity. Go figure. That is why Hobbes devoted a large section of his work to the critique of institutional religion in particular. And specifically, he tried to show that the supposed theological differences of his day between the different denominations were built on very weak foundations and that to try to construct theological arguments from scriptural analysis was a failed enterprise from the start. Now, unfortunately, none of these arguments have really persisted into the modern day. They're not, you know, very strong, for example, in the philosophy of religion. Um, so the only notion, or really the, the ultimately meaningful contribution that Hobbes had to philosophy was to abandon the concept that society ought to be set up or structured for some ultimate good or some ideal good, like salvation, or in the case of the civic republican tradition, virtue. So you may be thinking, this doesn't sound a whole lot like classical liberalism. Doesn't classical liberalism, as it's commonly touted in today's circles, advocate for very limited government? Well, if you'll remember, I said that Hobbes set the stage for classical liberalism. I didn't say he was a classical liberal. In fact, I don't think he could be at all, by any stretch of the term. But many of his ideas, nonetheless, were picked up by another contemporary English philosopher named John Locke. Specifically, Locke agreed with Hobbes that the ideal government was not for this world, and instead the role of government ought to be to prevent the worst kind of social structure, which John Locke pretty much agreed was anarchy. But unlike Hobbes, however, Locke saw correctly the source of the violent wars in Europe had much less to do with individuals' different religious beliefs and much more to do with authoritarian monarchs trying to exploit population for land and money, an observation that modern scholarship has largely confirmed, I might add. So rather than place sovereignty with some lofty monarch, 
therefore, Locke ha- insisted in his political writings that instead the people, that is, those who were being governed, had sovereignty. They were sovereign. Why? Well, Locke appealed to natural law theory, largely coming from Thomas Aquinas, that people were given certain rights by virtue of being created by God, simply by virtue of being human, by possessing the faculties and characteristics that Locke argued came from their creator. Every person had the right and the dignity to go where they wished and to do as they pleased so long as they did not violate the rights of other humans. Like Hobbes, Locke argued that people naturally surrender a certain amount of that freedom. So we have autonomy by our God-given dignity, but naturally we surrender a certain amount of that in order to establish national security, in order to form a state that can protect us from those who would seek to harm our rights or violate our freedom. But this state is not a permanent subservience to a sovereign like it is in Hobbes. The state is a kind of social contract. It's formed via an agreement between the governed and the governing, which can be dissolved at any time by the governed, according to Locke. So Locke's political philosophy, along with his empiricism, which we won't get into today, thus forms the basis of liberalism or the liberal position. And that is simply stated that the government's singular role, its sole role, is to protect the rights of each individual from violations both foreign to the state and domestic to the nation. And this would become known in philosophy as liberalism. That ought to sound pretty familiar because after the encyclical Cato's Letters, which my newsletter is named after, which popularized Locke's philosophy, once that became widely popular in the colonial United States, Locke's philosophy became the basis for the American political experiment. And it was, in fact, the predominant philosophy, along with the Christian intellectual tradition and the civic republican tradition, that motivated the writing of the founding fathers and the founding documents and the Constitution of the United States. Now, you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with capitalism? And that's a great question. So remember, Hobbes argued that none of us could know what the ultimate good is, so there's no point in making a fuss about whatever the next life's goodness is. Instead, we ought to focus on this worldly well-being. And to that end, a big part of Hobbes' work was based on what are called the passions, classically called the passions, but we can think of these as emotions, Right? Movements of the soul. Hobbes tried to refashion these passions or emotions, things like self-love or covetousness, which have been historically viewed as sinful by the Christian and civic republican traditions, as we have examined. But he tried to refashion these concepts into positive character traits, or at least, at the very least, positive to the social structure. That idea that things like covetousness or self-interest or greed could be positive things would be picked up by later thinkers, most notably Voltaire. So Voltaire would be a hugely significant figure in turning the tide toward a positive view of capitalism. We are not going to examine Voltaire in this series. I will get into him a little bit uh, next week when we cover the kinds of influences we didn't exactly examine 
in my brief series, but he would turn out to be a major, major figure in the Enlightenment for popularizing commercial society. Um, he took up this, this idea that self-love, for example, would be a, a, not only a good thing, but was a tool for peace and prosperity. Voltaire used the example of the Dutch in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, which was the most commercial society bef you know, before England commercialized. It was actually the sort of what you might think as kind of the birthplace of uh, proto-capitalism, where people of not just different Christian denominations, but all kinds of various religions lived in relative, if not absolute, peace. He also wrote an entire book about his trip to England, which by his day had commercialized, where he described seeing every denomination of Christianity walking side by side in peace, getting deals done. So Voltaire became a champion for market economies by picking up this idea that, that Hobbes had started. David Hume, um, the Scottish philosopher, and Adam Smith, the Scottish moral philosopher as well, were both influenced by Voltaire and subsequently Thomas Hobbes um, and would go on to argue along similar lines. Of course, Adam Smith famously wrote the book by which we tend to sort of arbitrarily and inaccurately subscribe as the birthplace of modern capitalism, the wealth of nations. So all across Europe, in the wake of Thomas Hobbes' philosophy, thinkers popped up in his shadow to claim that traditional vices like self-interest were not only practical, but they were actually good for society. And then with the rise of liberalism in the 17th and 18th century, there came a political philosophy that divorced the church's authority from the state's authority and gave predominance to the notion that individuals have the autonomy and dignity to be free to quote-unquote pursue their own happiness. And with this, with this net of both the political philosophy from liberalism and a shift in moral philosophy coming from Voltaire and Adam Smith and David Hume, began to change our notion of capitalism. Began, we began to see capitalism as not only necessary, like a necessary evil for society, but something which ought to be developed if we want people to pursue virtue and have the freedom to do that and the freedom to be charitable and etc. etc. Um, so beginning with Hobbes then we have the intellectual grounding for this positive shift towards capitalism which has persisted to today in a large part unchanged. Next week we will conclude our series on capitalism with some final thoughts and a brief look at the many many areas of this conversation we have not looked into. Um, as always, thanks for listening. I'm Eric Giannis, and this has been another episode of the Eric Giannis Podcast.